0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello. I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia Pacific region. On the sidelines of COP26, Nepali Prime Minister Sher Bahadur Dayuba met his Indian counterpart Narendra Modi as part of an effort to find a way to rebuild ties between Kathmandu and New Delhi, which had grown sour in recent years, with a boundary dispute between the two as its lowest point. Around the same time, China announced a donation of 1.6 million COVID vaccine doses to Nepal, as the country hovers around a 30% vaccination rate. Nepal's discussions often reduce it to a country sitting between two great powers, especially as relations between those two great powers worsen. Or perhaps they talk about it as a strategically important country, but one whose history and people are rarely brought up. Amish Mulmi's All Roads Lead North, Nepal's Turn to China, published by Context earlier this year, by Hearst Internationally early next year, and by Oxford University Press in the USA, helps to fill in these critical details. Combining insights from centuries of history to on-the-ground reporting along the China-Nepal border, Mulmi gives a full representation of Nepal's long relationship with its neighbors. Amisha's writings have been published in The Himalayan Arc, Journeys East of Southeast, and The Best Asian Speculative Fiction 2018, and Al Jazeera, Roads and Kingdoms, Himal South Asian, India Today, the Kathmandu Post, and The Record. We're joined today by my friend, writer, and journalist, Helen Lee. Helen, welcome. Could you say a few words about yourself and your past experience with Nepal?
0: Hey, Nicholas and Hamish, uh, hey my name is Helen. And as he just said, uh, I'm a writer and journalist. And actually, so my connection with Nepal and, and China is very interesting here. Um, I'm calling in from the States, but I was working abroad in Asia and traveling during the Spring Festival of 2020, when we all know what happened in 2020, which was that the borders shut down during COVID. And I became stuck in Nepal in February 2020, and I stayed there until August of 2021. So I got to experience all the lockdowns during that COVID time period. And I was actually working in Beijing previously during that time and trying to get back, but precisely the relationships you're exploring in your book, whether it's the interconnectedness between Nepal, India, and China, and the rest of the world during this time, like heavily shaped my experiences in Nepal. And so I also stayed in the Boda region and kind of went to the Shaobu-Besi, like Langtang region. And I think what was really eye-opening was that I saw the vaccination efforts during COVID. So what you're looking at, um, the relationship between Nepal and China, I feel like the historical and the modern day implications, I got to see some of that firsthand. And so I'm really glad to join this conversation and thanks for inviting me.
1: Today, the three of us will talk about Nepal and China, what connects their countries, their economies, and their peoples. We'll talk about historical links, Tibetan exiles, investment, and what India thinks about all this. So Amish, thank you so much for joining us today. My first question is a big picture one. How does Nepal figure into our conversations about international relations in Asia?
2: Thank you, Nicholas. Thank you, Helen, for having me over on this show. I think that's an interesting question to begin with, because the first the first question that, like, I mean, in response, what I would ask is, how do you determine, let's say, importance in international relations, right? Like, uh, if you were to say, historically, Nepal has a history of old, let's say, uh, the civilization history is pretty old, uh, along with, the, it developed alongside the Indo-Gangetic plane, so that's there. But more, more recently, it is the oldest nation state in South Asia in its current form. Uh, it is also one of the oldest, uh, uh, kind of, uh, There is, uh, I believe the UK has one of the oldest bilateral relationships with Nepal uh, since 1816 onwards. Uh, it is also a landlocked nation state that is, let's say, uh, since its very beginning, in negotiating its sovereignty between two giant neighbors. And... The Himalayas, of course, uh, form a major part of the focus of uh, the attention on Nepal across the world. But It's also been there in the geopolitical spotlight both during the Cold War, before during the imperial era, and now. Uh, so what's happened is that uh, I would I would consider this uh, I would consider that Nepal's importance in geopolitical, let's say aspects comes from these ideas one is of course the i the old imperial idea of what used to be a buffer state let's say between india and china you know to work as a let's say a security let's say barrier so these sort of uh, concepts these sort of like ideas have been taken forward into the contemporary era so
1: so i want to maybe get into some of the history of of nepal and china you one of the earliest chapters in your book talks about the, the Newar traders in Tibet. You know, they're an expatriate community. They have their own privileges. They often have second families. And you talk about the laws that were set up to deal with those second families. But I guess, how did that community arise?
2: Well, see, I mean, if, you, if you've been to Kashmandu, you'll notice that a lot of uh, the old parts of the city display this sort of like unique, let's say, uh, Arts and cultural style, architectural and cultural style, that seems to be a mix of both the north and the south, or rather the Tibetan highlands as well as the Indo-Gangetic plains, and that's also because Kathmandu Valley developed as an entrepot between these two, let's say, uh, disparate civilizations historically. So what used to happen was that traders from the Gangetic plains used to come up to Kathmandu, where in the Kathmandu's old markets. They used to be these, let's say, bazaars where traders from the north, from Tibet, would arrive with their goods. Uh, from Tibet, you would have salt, gold, wool coming in. Yak tails, yak tails was a major export at that time. And from, uh, let's say, uh, from the south, uh, grains, consumer goods, all these clothes, textiles. These goods would tra- travel, travel, uh, be transported across the mountains. And alongside that what we also saw was the uh, the diffusion of uh buddhism as a religion i mean as as tibet became as tibet grew into the buddhist religion and uh in the, in its earlier centuries what used to happen was that buddhist teachers from india and nepal used to go to tibet and uh take along let's say manuscripts take along uh, uh take along religious texts and alongside that uh, that dissemination of religion also allowed trade practices or a trade culture to be built up. So, this, this, uh, so the trade that was later, let's say, uh, uh, the the Nepal traders profited from was actually built on both this religious as well as this economic or cultural link in earlier times. As you said, there were, there used to be treaties that allowed them monopoly, that allowed them access. In fact, until uh, the end of the 18th century, Nepal uh, never Kathmandu rulers used to mint coins for Tibet. So what? So Tibet never had uh, Tibet. The first mint in Tibet, I believe, was set up around uh, 1793 or 1794 after its two wars with Nepal. So, that, so that is obviously the the sort of nature of how the Nawabs became these traders. But at the same time, we have to remember that the Himalayas. Uh, imagine as this you know the silo sort of communities living in silo in isolation but in reality they weren't that uh, there were dynamic societies they used to uh, wherever trade was possible across the passes trans himalayan trade was taking place and this is not just in Nepal this is across the Himalayan belt and you had ethnic and cultural similarities you had religious ties so Kathmandu was essentially one of the primary centers of this sort of trade. Uh, I believe Almora in uh, Kumau was one of the centers. Uh, in uh, for west, the British tried to develop Shimla as one such center through the Shimla-Tibet Road. So there, there were many, many, and the British obviously one of the one of the earliest reasons why they were sort of interested in Nepal was this this sort of idea that oh. If you could trade with Tibet and China overland, it would uh, profit them quite a bit. So that was one of the earliest, let's say, East India Company interests in the region as well. And then what happened was this trade also sort of evolved as, let's say, imperial ambitions grew. And uh, in 1903, you had uh, Francis' young husband go into Tibet and open up Tibet for British trade. Uh, with British trademarks, I mean, three three sites. That allowed Calcutta and Kalimpong, uh, this new city, this new town near Darjeeling, to develop as center of this transatlantic trade. So Kathmandu's importance as an entrepreneur began to die out because what happened was nepal Newar traders then moved their businesses east. Uh, with the railways in India, it was easier to travel to Calcutta, buy goods there. And then uh, from there, uh, shift the goods to Kalimpong via jeep, then take it over Nathula and Sikkim, and there on. So Kashmandu, the importance of Kathmandu began to die out after, let's say, the early years of the 20th century in this trans himalayan trade. But the, the sort of legends, the, 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 the sort of romanticism of that trade has never really died out in the community. Um, uh, one of Nepal's most uh, well-known epics, was is actually based on a uh, a Nevada song that is about a uh, a, hus- a wife telling her husband not to go to Tibet for trade. Uh, you still have old traders. In fact, uh, during the course of my research, what the people I met were the last generation of these traders who went to Lhasa and stayed there for years at a stretch. So there is this heavy interest, and I there is also this newfound, let's say curiosity that this newfound affirmation among the, uh, let's say, the uh, the children of such traders that, okay, the traders from Kathmandu used to participate in what was an offshoot of the old Silk Road. And that by itself sort of creates this sort of, uh, let's say, image of this trans trade and the Niva traders themselves.
0: Oh, okay. Okay. Um... Yeah, so we've talked somewhat about like the historic relation, the traders. Uh, I wanted to ask a little bit more about since then, there's been a lot of changes in kind of government forms, whether it's China, whether it's Nepal, and how has China viewed Nepal and its government throughout this process? And how has that changed from the, you know, since the 2000s or, you know, before with like the, the monarchy? And also now with the heads of government constantly changing, sometimes uh, how has China's worldview on Nepal and its government uh, changed and played a role in this relationship?
2: I think it's it's, it's China has had a very very interesting relationship with Nepal. Uh, let me tell you a story. Uh, this 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 is, I think, around 1956, 1957, just about when Nepal and China had established bilateral relations, the People's Republic of China, that is. Uh, And I I believe a Nepali prime minister or a minister, a Nepali political leader was talking to Zhao Enlai about uh, Chinese aid and why China did not match India in its aid at that time to Nepal. And Zhao Enlai had an answer that said, the uh, basically told the leader that if we match the aid that is given by India, we're in Delhi will not be too happy. So what what I'm trying to say is that in the early years, till about like 1959, 1960, when India and China's relations were still, let's say, amicable, uh, China was sort of trying to secure Nepal's. Uh, support. You know, trying to secure, uh, trying to secure diplomatic relations with Nepal in order to, let's say, affirm its own sovereignty in Tibet. Because Nepal used to have diplomatic relations independent with, with Tibet, independent of Qing China, right? So, so China and really needed Nepal's support in those years. After the 1962 war, uh, when China and India began to see themselves as rivals in Asia, uh, there was obviously a sort of a larger geopolitical fallout, where you had these two countries competing with each other in terms of influence, in terms of aid, in terms of the projects they were building. China was particularly keen on establishing itself as an, an, uh, let's say, a polar opposite of India, where India's interference, uh, India's, let's say, influence in Nepali political affairs uh, was sort of uh, China was uh, wanted to position itself as entirely opposite to that. So it basically only interacted with the kings, with the monarchy, with whom they had a very good relation. In fact, um, King Birindra of Nepal, I believe, was the, first, we- the non, uh, first head of state to visit Tibet after 1950. Uh, I think in 1973 or 1974, he was the first head of state to visit Tibet so the, the relations were pretty good uh, it continued and till 2001 to till 2008 i would say uh, china had engaged very very heavily with the monarchy and in nepal uh, on the other hand uh, like i mean india's relation india while it dealt with the monarchy it also dealt with the political parties india was seen as sort of engineering democratic change in nepal through the 1990 revolution so there was a sort of a let's say push and pull between these two countries. What happened in 2008 was that Nepal turned into a republic. And with the monarchy gone, China suddenly found itself, let's say, without its permanent friend in Nepal, right? And it it definitely, then it started reaching out to other political parties. Uh, The communists, uh, the Maoists were one of the first, uh, I believe, uh, the Maoists, when, even when they were fighting the guerrilla war um, in Nepal they, were, they had tried to reach out to China at that time but China had refu- absolutely refused to deal with them because uh, they were in fact so close to the king and I, I think in 2001 or 2002 the Chinese ambassador I guess, called the Maoists bandits who were, let's say, I believe the term was besmirching Mao's name so they, they didn't look at the Maoists in very high regard, but after 2008, all of this changed. So the 2008 is also when we see, let's say, this sort of change in tack in how China, let's say, establishes itself in Nepal. Because you see, the post there is a post-conflict transition, and China sort of uh, realizes that all right, if it uh, there is there is a quote by the Chinese uh, Foreign Ministry official in which he says, China cannot keep its head in the sand any longer in Nepal. Uh, after 2008, so it, it engages itself more in the post-conflict transition. It begins to engage with the political and the uh, ruling establishment, and that's how uh, this, let's say, this this new China that we are seeing in Nepal—it's—it's it's, you know, what we are seeing today is essentially a post-2008 phenomenon. So,
0: yeah, post-2008 phenomenon, and um, I'm sure that. For many around the world, one of the times when people thought of Nepal was during the 2015 earthquake, um, where uh, within this tragedy there was a lot of border and goods trading issues suddenly with the like the Indian embargo. Um, how did the 2015 earthquake sort of, if at all, affect the relationship between the between Nepal and China? See. Hmm.
2: I think the 2015 earthquake, what it did was it gave a tremendous push to what was already a process, a process that had been going on since 2008. Like I said, Uh, I think we have to, uh, let's, let's consider this a little backwards, right? Like, I mean, like I said, like in 2008, China starts engaging more and more with the political class in Nepal, with the ruling class, the security establishment in Nepal regarding Tibetans because there were massive anti-Beijing Olympic protests in Kathmandu. So China wanted to cut down on border crossings of Tibetans. China wanted to, uh, uh, let's say, not have any political protests by Tibetan exiles in Kathmandu. So it began to engage very, very heavily. So you see rising aid, you see rising, let's say, visits between political leaders, the Chinese defense uh, and security personnel start visiting Nepal. Then in 2013, 2012, Xi Jinping comes to power. In 2013, he, he sort of creates this new foreign policy with respect to the neighborhood where he puts the China's neighborhood as priority. He says that you have to increase people-to-people cooperation. You have to go out and engage with your neighbors more in, on security issues. So this what happened in 2015 was that the, when the earthquake came and then the constitution was promulgated, the Indian uh, uh, unofficial blockade was imposed. So the Nepali political establishment wanted to sort of rid itself of the economic dependence Nepal had on India. And in China, it found a willing partner to do that. And what happened was that Nepal, the first sign was basically the the symbol of the blockade itself was the long lines at petroleum uh, at petrol stations because there was a fuel shortage. So China symbolically sent across about 12 trucks of petroleum products and it was not a lot, but symbolically, it sort of broke the shackles of in the Indian monopoly over fuel supply till then. So, that is one. The second thing is obviously to understand how China could, uh, how this could happen in 2015 and not earlier. To understand that, what we have to remember is that in 1989 too, India had imposed a similar blockade where there were fuel shortages in Nepal and this was the this blockade was sort of one of the one of the key drivers of that blockade was Nepal's decision to buy anti aircraft guns from china and at that time china uh, could only give nepal let's say vocal support or moral support and essentially at international forums uh, china said that uh, no third country should uh, no 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 outside country should interfere in nepal's uh, internal affairs things like that but there was no any delivery, actual delivery of physical products. But in 2015, the, the petroleum came across, the slew of agreements came across. That was possible because China had started investing in infrastructure in Tibet since 1999 onwards. And that investment in infrastructure, that infrastructure, new Tibetan infrastructure, allowed China to send the petroleum products and be confident that it could Emerge as an economic alternative to India in Nepal, so post the 2015 blockade. So,
0: yeah, um, I think you just talked about like the petrol bringing that in and uh, wanted to talk about kind of the Chinese presence in Nepal today. And you talked about people to people. So, uh, kind of first, there's this uh, large corporate brand influence that's coming in. You t- you brought up the brand in your book, the Hongshu Cement. Um, I definitely, while in the ground, I saw it everywhere. And I also saw brands like Miniso and Yoyo So, Chinese um, convenience store brands coming into Nepal. Uh, what is kind of the growing uh, business or corporate influence now of China in Nepal? And then I want to jump later on into kind of the people to people.
2: No, see, the thing is, obviously, I mean, Chinese consumer goods have long been imported into Nepal. Uh, they've, been, they're, 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 they've been seen as a sort of cheap consumer goods. And uh, in in the 21st century, yes, like in the last couple of years, we've been hearing a lot of news about China emerging as the largest foreign direct investment, investor foreign investor in Nepal. But if you look at it relatively, right, China's investments in Nepal are still quite low compared to other countries in South Asia. Uh, they're mostly limited to SMEs. Uh, they're mostly uh, in the small and medium enterprise sectors, in tourism, in infrastructure. Uh, but you also these brands that you mentioned, let's say miniso and yoyo, so these are these are these are basically Nepali nationals who are let's say uh, bringing in franchises of these brands. so i wouldn't I wouldn't consider that as much as Chinese investment as the Hongxi cement, which is. Uh, The Hongshi Shivam uh, project was, is Nepal's largest foreign direct investment in manufacturing till date. And that has been obviously one of the more, let's say the, uh, I would say those benchmark investments that everyone is sort of giving their attention on. But more interestingly, I would say Chinese investment in Nepal is primarily in this sector of tourism where they are setting up restaurants, where they're setting up hotels travel agencies they're setting up cargo agencies i mean helen you've been in nepal so you'd probably you'd probably notice in tamil there's an entire street where there are chinese hotels and this uh, uh, let's say uh, they're uh, they're selling uh, uh, let's say services to the chinese tourists in nepal right so i would say that you it has, Chinese investments in the country have to be differentiated from the investments in, let's say, Sri Lanka, where it's heavily, I mean, the Hambantota port and the Colombo port city projects are obviously great examples. But that scale of, let's say, infrastructure investment is yet to arrive in Nepal, at least on the Chinese side. So that is that is one, let's say, distinction I would make about investment. The other is, there is, the Chinese let's say that the investment a lot of investment of china is also in in the form of loans let's say or let's say through uh, contracts uh, let's say construction contracts for example recently i was traveling to the upper tamakoshi hydropower in Nepal, which is uh, nepal's largest hydropower i'm not exactly sure i think it's about like 450 to about 600 megawatt i'm not exactly sure how much but there i believe the chinese uh, a chinese company was the lead physical contractor uh, so you also have uh, in raswa uh, near the near another border where you have the chinese companies building a tripod you have chinese companies building a hydropower the road expanding the road you have chinese companies who picked up mining licenses who are exploring for petrochemicals so it's it's there but i wouldn't uh, yes, for by the Nepali scale, by the Nepali scale, yes, it's significant amounts of investment. But if you l- look at it relatively in terms of South Asia, I wouldn't say it's still reached the level of even a Sri Lanka at this moment.
0: Uh. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. Thanks for kind of making the distinction between the Hongshu and the the what you talked about with Nepali uh, business. Uh, people going and kind of bringing these franchises in. Um, I kind of wanted to like touch on your point on tourism and uh, what that does with socioeconomic mobility. So fascinating thing that I noticed when I was in Pokhara, um, which is a pretty big tourist hub, is that I was uh, trying to shop for some goods. And I noticed in certain cashmere shops in Pokhara, there are mostly men who are from the Kashmir region, bringing in products for Pokhara because there's a demand for it. And then they had girlfriends who were from China, um, from potentially third-tiered cities. And because Nepal and China have a very flexible visa system, um, they were also kind of doing business in the Pokhara region too. And um, I just found that to be such an interesting phenomenon because it, it shows a story of socioeconomic mobility for people across the region. And so when you talk about people-to-people relationships and tourism and less of the corporate, more of like the the, the individuals making these decisions, who stands to sort of benefit socioeconomically? Because I see a lot of mobility, people taking like chances here.
2: Yeah, I think uh, that's a, see, obviously the, you know, the story about Kashmir, let's say Kashmiri traders with Chinese girlfriends or spouses. I'm not, uh, I, I'm not really sure about that because I haven't really explored into that. But uh, let me tell you a very interesting story about a Chinese man who comes from, uh, I believe he comes from Sichuan. And he came to Pokra in 2007, 2008 as a tourist. And he sort of, I mean, he, he liked the place. And at that time, there were very few Chinese businesses in the country. And he just asked a couple of uh, the Chinese restaurants that were already in Pokhara that, you know, is there any, do you think there is any potential? And the restaurant owners told him, why don't you start farming? We don't, we, we lack for Chinese, let's say, vegetables. We lack for Chinese rice. And that man, he started leasing out a small portion of land to the north of Pokhara and over a period of time uh, because now the Chinese uh, are also building the Pokhara International Airport, Chinese tourists were coming to Pokhara quite a lot because there was this film Up in the Air, there was a Chinese film called Up in the Air that was shot in Nepal. Uh, it was shot in Kathmandu, Sora, Chitwan and Pokhara and essentially the film ends with the the lead uh, and the lead actress sort of paragliding, and paragliding became this big trend, and a lot of travel agents who in Pokhara I spoke to who told me that the Chinese whenever they come, the first thing they ask is about paragliding. So that sort of cultural impact that we see. So this and this Chinese farmer, because of all of this, today he loans he leases out about ten hectares of land. And he is growing rice. He is growing uh, lettuce. He is growing spinach. He's supplying to the Chinese airport, uh, the Chinese uh, built airport, the Chinese restaurants in town. And he's essentially, I mean, he he's a Chinese businessman who's in Pokra and he speaks in Nepali, he he has local friends. So that's sort of, that's uh, the mobilities that you're talking about, obviously, the more you engage with the people of, let's say, two countries or cultures, mobilities will always happen, right? I mean, historically, as we saw, I mean, the, the whole idea, or rather the whole, one of the outcomes of trans trade, as I said earlier, was this mobility that you saw between Nepalese and Tibetans, between ethnic groups that were close to the Tibetans, so I, I, that that is obviously there. As, as to the benefits, I think, again, I would make a distinction here between the Nepali people who are sort of competing with the Chinese in sectors such as tourism, you know, in sectors in, let's say, in travel industry, things like that, and Nepalese who are benefiting from Chinese, let's say, investments or, let's say, the investments that create local economies around their own, let's say, the airport or a hydropower project. So both, I believe that both groups will have different, let's say, perceptions or perceive the benefits of Chinese investment differently. Uh, I know that smaller Nepali business owners, especially in the tourist districts, do sort of have issues with Chinese businesses coming in because Chinese businesses uh, find it easier to set up. Uh, Chinese businesses require relatively less amounts of investment compared to Nepalese, and they are willing to pay higher rents. So, uh, Nepali small business owners are obviously, let's say, troubled by that. But at the same time, I mean, a, a, an investment like Hongxi, on the other hand, it, it generates an economy of its own. Uh, you have land prices shooting up around the factory. You have new investments. You have new industries coming out uh, around the factory. So, these sort of, I would say, uh, the, 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 these outcomes are certainly different as they should be with any sort of investment but on the whole I must say that Chinese investment is regarded very quite positively in Nepal it's regarded as bringing in I mean the, China, the our political leaders have let's say oriented themselves to Chinese uh, to the Chinese tourists the Chinese ambassador has been vocal in her support for Nepal's Nepal's tourism and yes, the pandemic has obviously short-circuited these plans. But one one simple example that I can give you how the Nepali state, let's say, imagines the importance of the Chinese visitor is uh, in 2020 uh, we were, we were sort of uh, planning a visit to Nepal year 2020 obviously got scuttled. But we are expecting around five, about half a million Chinese tourists. And in 2019, the number was actually about like. 200,000, something like that. 10 years ago, just in 10 years ago, the number was about 17 to 20,000. So you can see the sort of growth in that. That is, And what had happened was that Nepali tourism had slowly begun to orient itself to the Chinese visitor. So that, those signs were showing, but after the pandemic, I mean, the entire industry has crashed. So let's see how it recovers, whether it will still recover with the Chinese tourists in mind. All right, I'll do Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: Upfront payment of forty five dollars equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month, face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active mint customers by five thirty one twenty four. Get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. So you mentioned,
1: you know, the Tibetan community here and there in your answers. And you know, it's I think it's probably impossible to talk about nepal and china without talking about tibet and the tibetan community tibetan exiles um how has nepal tried to deal with the question of tibet
2: uh do you mean uh, post 1950 do you mean yes. Before? yes 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 okay. i
1: mean i mean post
2: 1950 okay no see i think it's it's the first the first is i think obviously uh, after the takeover of tibet uh, till 1959 i would say yes there were uh, there were issues inside tibet but outside countries did not really let's say feel the impact as much after they, they as they did after 1959 when which is when tibetan refugees started pouring into nepal and at that time nepal itself was had just opened up i believe there were very few airports and Tibetans, uh, Tibetan refugees poured in from different, uh, from as I met people who had traveled from as far as Kham in the east to as far as Nyari in the west, you know? So they were just crossing these Himalayan passes and settling in Nepali highlands and then you have to bring in aid to set to set up these uh, refugee camps on the outskirts of uh, urban centers or in areas where divisions are already settled with the help of aid groups such as red cross such as this, uh, the swiss i believe contributed quite a bit to that so the first is these these sort of Tibetan communities, right? These Tibetan settlement camps, they emerged as sort of mini economies of their own. They started having handicraft factories, carpet factories, and that became a big revenue owner, foreign exchange owner for Nepal through exports, right? Uh, so till till I would say the 1980s, the situation was pretty good, uh, despite. Despite an armed guerrilla, a Tibetan armed guerrilla, let's say resistance force, establishing itself in one of the Nepali Himalayan highlands known as Mustang, and in 1974 Nepal actually had to conduct a military operation and ask them to surrender. The Dalai Lama actually sent a taped message asking the rebels to surrender, and most of them did. And th- those who surrendered they were given uh, they, were, they were allowed to resettle in Nepal, some of them were also given citizenship. So till the 1980s this situation was uh, they were, the, Nepal looked upon Tibetan refugees, let's say with a benign eye uh, not really troubling them too much, sort of like benefiting from the expertise in handicrafts um, uh, uh, re- uh, monetarily as well. But in the 1980s, as the situation worsened in Tibet itself, China asked Nepal to crack down on border, let's say, crossings. And that is when, uh, I, I think, 1989 was declared as the cutoff year where any 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 Tibetan refugee who had entered Nepal or their children before 1989 would be given refugee certificates, overseas. and those who entered Nepal after 1989, they would not be given RCs and they would be asked to leave Nepal. And RC is essentially a refugee certificate that's essentially an identity document. Uh, Nepal has not signed onto any of the UN conventions of refugees, so this is the this is the only sort of identification document that Tibetan refugees had. And but even then, till till 2008, uh, or rather till early years of the 21st century, this is, this was the situation as it was like I mean. It, it was mostly ignored. Uh, Tibetan refugees were living their lives without much troubles. But then what happened was that King Gyanendra, during the Maoist war, he found himself isolated. He found himself, uh, once he declared the emergency in Nepal, he found himself isolated. India stopped delivering any weapons to him. The US and the UK stopped delivering military weapons to him. So, But China did not stop. He turned to China and in in return... China asked for the Dalai Lama's offices in Kathmandu to shut down and the king did that. So what China did then was to create a template of a quid pro quo, so as to say. And then in 2008, when the Tibetan protests broke out in Kathmandu over against the Beijing Olympics, there were three self emulations here in Kathmandu while the wave of self emulations was going across the Tibetan plateau. China began to engage heavily, Uh, with the political and the security establishment, as I said earlier, and aid was delivered to Nepali security forces uh, in the the form of riot gear, in the form of x-ray machines, in the form of, uh, let's say, immigration control, in the form of surveillance cameras in recent years. And in return, essentially, Nepal was asked to stop, halt any political expression by the Tibetans, by the Tibetan exiles, so which meant that there were no longer any protests by Tibetans, there were no longer any protests uh, on, let's say, March 10th, on the on the March 10th, uh, uprising anniversary, on the Dalai Lama's birthday even. And uh, Nepal was asked to control, or rather be strict about border crossings. China, of course, invested heavily in its own border infrastructure, so border crossings started declining. Heavily, I would if I, if I remember correctly, I think between 2008 to 2015, the number went down to single digits, the number of annual crossings, and there's a, there's a very interesting report in 2014 by the Human Rights Watch about uh, Tibetan, let's say, the state of Tibetan refugees in Nepal. So that is how it is today. In fact, I would argue it's gone a little bit more and or. What in 2019, what we saw, June 2019, what we saw was a Tibetan uh, national or a Tibetan exile who was an American citizen denied entry into Nepal on China's wishes. And it was, it was a case of mistaken identity, but it showed that Nepal was a willing part, uh, Nepal was willing to allow, let's say, Tibetan exile expression to die out, to let's say be suppressed. In favor of its relations with China, Nepal has always been in favor of the one-China policy. Nepal, this is the one-China policy, is repeated in every joint statement. So these issues, because of these issues, I think post 1950, as as China's relationship with Tibet or the plateau has changed, so has I would say Nepal's own relationship with the Tibetan refugees who are living here. So.
0: Yeah, um, it's pretty interesting that you bring up the 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 presence and security. Um, I was in the Bodh region, and I do believe during specific holidays, the stupa itself is um, closed off. Uh, I don't know the definitive reason, but I've heard some friends speculate it's related to kind of the uh, the policies you mentioned of of keeping things down and and avoiding. Uh, Avoiding conflict, although the cultural influence, the Tibetan cultural influence, is still very much, very present, very big. Um, Yeah, I wanted to move on to this this term you brought up in the book about the fourth world. It was the first time I saw I saw this term mentioned, and you talked about the fourth world and areas such as Mustang. And would you care to elaborate a little bit more about what that means? What is the fourth world, and why it's an important idea for us to grasp if we want to understand the relationship between China and Nepal.
2: So, but when I when I say fourth world, uh, I mean the indigenous communities of the Himalayan region who are essentially coming under state control, effective state control for the first time in, let's say, the modern history. And this term, uh, as I said, like, I mean, it's borrowed from other anthropologists and geographers. The term Zomia itself was coined by Shendil with respect to Southeast Asia, but I believe that it can also be applied to the Himalayan uh, communities as well. What I mean is that especially this is, this is, Something that is especially more, let's say, noticeable on the Nepali side. Perhaps that's also because I'm a Nepali and I can sort of like trace this sort of evolution of the Nepali state in the Himalaya, right? Uh, what consider this? Uh, uh, let's say, uh, let me give, let me give you, a, let's say, the historical instance, right? Like when the Tibetan, let's say, guerrilla, uh, guerrilla has decided to set up Mustang as a base you know for the operations it was not let's say uh, a lot of it was also uh, determined by the fact that the nepali state itself had very little effective control on the ground despite it being let's say their territory or rather within their borders right so one of the major motivations for the guerrilla forces to set a base in mustang was that and it was only in early 1970s that Nepal actually set up something that uh, an institution, or uh, let's say, uh, in 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 Nepali terms, it's called a summit, right? Or a committee, but it, a committee is more like an institution in Nepali terms, and to to look after the northern regions, and it set aside 15 districts that bordered China, and they started looking at them separately as a unit. But it's only actually in the 21st century that state making attempts or state building attempts are being seen through let's say roads through new infrastructure through new these conceptual ideas such as north and north to south corridor where kathmandu dreams of linking being the link between china and india using these himalayan passes let's say in mustang or in, in far western Karnali, or let's say in Rasuwa, in Langtang, where you went, that this whole concept of being a north south corridor is something that Nepali policymakers have been pushing since the 21st century. So this 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 fourth wall space is a very very interesting let's say category to me in terms of it defines uh, let's say how uh, even I mean there are, there. Are, Consider this from another perspective. That yes, when we talk about when we talk about the idea of an empire or the idea of let's say imperialism, right? Like I mean, it's it's doesn't always be it, It's not always like a oh a foreign country comes and takes you over. Or it, there is there the, countries also use imperial tactics or imperial methods within their own territories, and we see this especially. I mean. China is a great example of that of what it's doing in Tibet. Right, what it had done in Tibet, it is essentially an imperial act. And in Nepal too, I mean, even in smaller states, how the center views the periphery is tells us a lot about how the state imagines itself. Right, and. The periphery the himalayan periphery in nepal for a long time had just been i mean it was it was there it was not it was it was regarded as unlivable it was regarded the people were not regarded as very very important they still do not have much of a voice in terms of political representation or in terms like i went to this valley uh i went to this limi valley as part of my research and the, it's it's a, there are three villages and it's will it has a population of about 1100 I think now, and not a single individual from Limi is in the is in the Nepali let's say bureaucracy uh, till date right. And that and, and in another place called Mustang, I met the police and not a single police officer even belonged to the Himalayan region, let alone spoke the local language right and this is the same across most of the himalayan border regions um, in nepal border settlements and that tells us a very interesting way that tells us how let's say kathmandu views these regions it views these regions as let's say essential to the national concept of development but it will not incorporate or rather it is still unsure of how it wants to incorporate those citizens living in these periphery peripheral regions within the national, let's say, narrative. And I think that's where this sort of citizens agency becomes more important. Um, Like I say in the book, I mean, citizens in these border regions are no longer waiting for, let's say, Kathmandu to come with their solutions. Rather, I mean, they are seeking out their own solutions. Uh, uh, There is something called a border citizen's card that China and Nepal issue to each other border uh, border district populations and using that card nepali nationals who are living in these 15 border districts can go across to china and work for starting from six months to up to a year they can they can have businesses they work at construction sites they work in restaurants and they also own businesses so they they uh and because because of better infrastructure on the chinese side and little to none infrastructure on the Nepali side, what's happening is that the roads uh, that are coming that are uh, that are coming to these Himalayan communities for the first time are coming down from Tibet rather than coming up from Nepal. So that's the same in Limi. you have that you have that same situation in this area called Dulpa in Mustang so th- uh, in in many many ways, and finally, obviously these border communities also depend on China. For the subsistence, in terms of let's say food supplies, because uh, in the Himalayan, in the Trans-Himalayan region, the, the ag- agricultural output is not uh, sufficient to last the year, so they have to have food supplements, food grain supplements. And before the pandemic, uh, uh, the Limi, where I was, where I visited, was entirely dependent on China for food imports. And post the pandemic. Because China has shut down the border since two years, there's been a food shortage in the Himalayan regions. Just about two weeks, about a week ago, uh, uh, locals from Limi crossed a snow snowden pass and came to Kathmandu to make the point that we are there is a famine going on. We don't have anything to eat, and the Nepali state was just today uh, it airlifted. Helicopters; it airlifted supplies via military helicopters. So that is the situation as it is, as it stands now, and that's where this concept of the fourth world comes in. That how do you want to bring these communities in as part of your state? But how do you do that? What are and the dilemmas that you face as a, let's say, uh, least developing country, as let's say, somewhere as a country that does not have the resources, but wants to create this, this narrative of development, right? So,
0: Yeah, um, you brought up kind of these different uh, border communities and what their firsthand experiences are in your book. And I wanted to ask, how did you decide what, the approach to this book in your writing? Because it combines kind of the historical archival research and you also have your personal visits, these stories of individuals and how they benefit from China-Nepal relations. Uh, how did you kind of come to this writing style as, as your,
2: your book writing approach? I think it has, it has a lot to do with, the, see, I mean, it had a lot to do with the fact that I'm not a trained historian or an archivist to begin with. I mean, I'm interested in history. I mean, but I'm interested in learning about how history shapes the present and sort of like can it tell us about the future as well? And I think a lot of it, a lot of my writing, a lot of consciously, I wanted to tell the story of the people rather than talk about history from this grand state or rather this grand empire, empirical, let's say, sort of imperial narrative. You know, that is usually how historical narratives are put forth, right? Like, I mean, they are told from the center's perspective. They're told from territorial acquisition perspective. And I didn't want to go into that so much. I I think a lot of it is obviously personal, let's say, choice. But it's also about, like we discussed at the beginning, that I wanted to tell the story of how history affects the common person. You know, let's say, I mean, we, we rarely give a thought to how let's say state policies, uh policy making choices, policy making decisions affect the person on the ground. And that is one of the things, that was one of my prime motivations when I started writing this book. And I think the second the second thing was of course that it it, it was possible for me to see this evolution, you know, see this let's say change or rather change see this notion of how The Himalayas themselves have been, let's say, imagined in the Western world or in in literature in, let's say, uh, in in popular culture as this sort of like romanticized space. But there is rarely a thought given about the communities who live there. There's rarely a thought about, I mean, of course, I mean, there is a lot of, let's say, attention given to Tibetan Buddhism and it's, let's say, esoteric and sort of those practices but there's little thought given to the communities or its historical evolution on how the communities interacted with each other like i said like i mean to imagine the himalayas as this sort of silo as this collection of isolated communities is is, is entirely i would say one of the biggest historical errors in how we view the mountains because i mean we know that cultures are never let's say uh they they, they they evolve, they, they sort of communicate with each other, they sort of like exchange goods, they exchange thoughts, ideas with each other. And I wanted to trace that, like I want, and could I, and obviously it was a challenge in the sense that could I do it while keeping this larger historical perspective in mind of state to state relations? And could, and uh, fortunately, I found the stories. I would say that you know, helped me break this story down. Help me tell this larger story of how people lived in the mountains, how people, uh, you know, like how states saw the mountains, how uh, people came, uh, people's lives changed as a result of great power contests. And uh, thankfully, I mean, those those stories, the stories that I collected and the histories that I sort of found. I was lucky in that, like I said, like, I mean, I got lucky that we are living in the, among the last generation of trans Himalayan traders, because I doubt trans transatlantic trade as it used to exist in, let's say, before 1950 can, you know, like, can, or even will restart in any form today. I mean, going by the way India and China, you know, competing with each other, going by the way US in, and US India placed on one side against China. And how Nepal is sort of struggling with its own, let's say, dilemmas about alignment or non-alignment. So it's, it's. I, I, I suppose I got lucky in quite a few ways. So, so, I wanted
1: to kind of go back to um, some of the some of the bigger picture questions about about Nepal, India, and China. Um, and I, I want to read a little bit from from the introduction, um, where you cite kind of how the Indian media sometimes talks about Nepal, where you say, where I think you use the line, headlines such as China uses Nepal suggest the Indian media's surprise at the possibility that South Asian countries could have relationships with nations other than India. Um, it does seem like there's this very strange, um, almost want to use the word possessive, maybe that's too strong, uh, view of Indians towards Nepal. And I just wonder if you might kind of say say a short few words about about. India, how they see Nepal, and kind of how that view is expressed?
2: So, you see, I mean, the Indian media is, I would say, it is a, a most effective example. But it is also, I mean, we also have to know the contextual ways in which Indian media has evolved and has started selling itself to the public, right? And how it's shaping public opinion. And it's very curious that in recent years, it in India, I mean, it's It also has to do with how India has begun to view its own position in the larger geopolitical, let's say, contest. There is obviously, there has been a long standing grouse among the, sub, uh, the countries of the subcontinent that India has always viewed uh, itself as a non-South Asian, South Asian hegemon, you know, if that makes sense. I mean, it it likes to consider itself as a South Asian hegemon, uh, as a South Asian leader, but its views, its eyes are pretty much oriented towards the West or towards Europe and Western, let's say, the Western civilization. And that is something that, I mean, uh, has also found its ways into its bilateral relationships. For example, I write in the book that mm, I, I explain how, uh, Jawaharlal Nehru the first indian prime minister in uh, indian prime minister after independence sort of viewed the relationship with nepal bhutan and sikkim as a traditional security relationship where these countries are essentially uh, uh, in in other words he the way he viewed nepal these himalayan states was a continuation how the british viewed these Himalayan states as a security buffer, as a way that the Himal- the Himalayas were sort of a natural barrier to any, let's say, uh, external excursions into Indian territory. So that has obviously shaped a lot of how India views Nepal, right? And that has also been one of the strains of the bilateral relationship where Nepal has always been willing to assert its agency. and. This agency can be seen in the form of if, uh, this recent uh, Kalapani territorial dispute, or going back to the decision to open up a road from Lhasa to Kathmandu, which India was not very happy with either. So slowly over a period of time, Nepal has begun to assert more agency in the subcontinent vis-a-vis in Nepal, uh, vis-a-vis India, right? But whether I mean it, it's it's also uh, You have to regard it as a as a a sort of a uh, on a different scale, like on a different time scale. Obviously, over a period of time, if you look at it long term, India has certainly lost ground to China in Nepal, at least in the 21st century. And but at the same time, that is also because the Chinese state itself has begun to project power much in a much faster way beyond its own borders, and it has engaged with its neighbours. In a much much more, let's say, diverse and uh, deeper manner than uh, in the twenty fourth in the twentieth century. Despite that, right, the primary external influence on Nepal continues to be India's, and Delhi has in many ways also realized the mistakes of I would say the errors of its policy uh, up till uh, that led to the twenty fifteen blockade, and there have been corrections, such as I mean. India has started focusing or rather emphasizing more on infrastructure construction or infrastructure development or connectivity projects. There have been recent power purchase agreements, new trains have been, uh, new train lines are being built, new highways are being built, despite the territory of dispute, right? So, it's not, it's not that, I, I doubt that that engagement with India will go out or rather will recede into the background at all. I mean... Indian engagement with Nepal will remain uh, Nepal's primary relationship. I, after all, I mean, it shares an open border and it shares deep, let's say, religious, economic ties, deep cultural ties. You have people moving across. Let's say, I mean, I lived in I lived in India for about I studied in India. I've lived in India for about ten years. So, and this is without a work visa and. You can, you can, and nationals from both countries can do that. And with such relations, I doubt that China can ever, let's say, as, you know, like, as it's sort of like popular to say, China can replace Nepal and replace India and Nepal. I doubt that will happen. However, I think, again, uh, depending on how the pandemic shapes up, as Chinese investments rise in Nepal, as Chinese, let's say, engagements rise in Nepal, the space for Indian, let's say engagement or maneuvering will reduce. Now that is something that Nepal will have to determine to what extent is it good enough for let's say Kathmandu. You know, it it will be a question it will be a question that Kathmandu will have to determine, answer for its itself. It cannot be left to the whim of let's say uh, a leader's choices, for personal or particular, let's say professional choices or any particular alliances, choices, an ideological choice, because, uh, quite frankly, I mean, Nepal does not. Nepal says that it pursues a non-aligned foreign policy, but that non-alignment is not really clear. How is it defined? Whether it just means not being part of any security alliance, or, or if it, does it mean more? I mean, we are seeing that with the current debate around the. Millennium Challenge Compact, uh, Millennium Challenge Corporation Compact by the U.S., which is a five hundred million dollar grant that Nepali. Let's say there's a massive discourse de- debate here about whether it will turn Nepal into other the Afghanistan, as its detractors say. So that's the thing. I mean, I think a lot of a lot of this, let's say, idea about India and Nepal or China and Nepal, I think will have to be determined by Nepal on its own terms. It has shown that Kashmandu has definitely shown an agency in and a willingness to do so, but can it do so in a time of great power contest? That remains to be seen. So,
0: Great. So one last question before we wrap up. It's, you wrote this book during the course of three years, and I, I did see in the book you mentioned COVID-19, so it does exist in this book world. Um, what's happened uh, within the... Nepal, India, China sphere, since you finished writing your book? And how do you kind of see the pandemic impacting that future? That's our last question.
2: So, so that's a curious question. And I'll answer it in two ways. Okay, And it's a paradoxical way because a lot has happened and a lot has not happened as well. So why why I say a lot has happened is basically uh, if you've been following Nepali politics, I mean, we've had another change in government. Uh, we had something called the Nepal Communist Party, which is a merger of two communist factions, the Maoists and another mainstream communist that was said to be, uh, let's say, uh, engineered by the Chinese themselves because the Chinese Communist Party had built up uh, fraternal relations with the Nepal Communist Party. Uh, Xi Jinping thought had been imported to train NCP cadres, and Oli, at that time, Oli was the prime minister. He had been, let's say, showing himself favorable uh, to favoring Chinese, let's say, engagement in visibility and investments in the country. This is before the pandemic, right? And then when the pandemic struck, uh, the first thing was obviously there was a there was a territorial dispute with India, and this is when that headline of China uses Nepal came up in Indian media and. There was a territorial dispute with India, so things seemed to be going China's way, where you know, India was losing ground in Nepal, and but suddenly what happened was that Oli had started bickering with two of his party rivals, and that domestic discord essentially found its way into foreign relations, where despite the territorial dispute, Oli started warming up to India, the Nepal Communist Party eventually split, China sent its people down to uh, Kathmandu for a week, within a week uh, of the split to determine whether the split was permanent, how it would affect relations, you know, and you, what suddenly there, there seemed to be this sort of analytical, let's say, uh, diversion or this analytical, let's say, belief that India had started gaining ground in Nepal because Oli had suddenly veered towards India and that sort of a thing. And But at the same time, it is, I mean, it, why I say a lot has not happened is also that even the, while Oli was famous, there was very little movement on any of the BRI or the big ticket projects that he had been promising with China, right? And there was very little movement on these projects. Yes, there was wider engagement and there, been, there was wider political engagement for sure. But whether that was translating into actually economic investment on the ground or, that was that is still a question. I mean, uh, to be, I, w- I would regard this as again, like I said earlier, that relatively no, yes on and the Nepali scale, Chinese investments are increasing, but no, you know, and then the pandemic happened, and then suddenly you have this political shift. There's a tectonic shift. You suddenly like China starts losing ground, uh, you know, of that sort. But then with all this vaccine diplomacy. You know, like China starts giving vaccines, India's vaccines stop coming being exported to Nepal, and so it's 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 a kind of a curious thing you know, where on the face of it there isn't too much happening. I mean, China is pretty much going about its ground. There's a new government. China seems to be okay with this government. There is day to day. I wouldn't say day to day, but there is there are engagements between the uh, between the Chinese mission and the political class here. Just recently there was a Let's say there was a there was a uh, in, interaction between uh, the Chinese, uh, the CCP, and uh, three communist party leaders of Nepal. So that sort of engagement is happening, right? India also seems to be pretty comfortable, like in the sense that the way you know, with the uh, way relations are being developed with this new government, and so it seems to be pretty calm on the surface. But under the surface, like I said, like I mean. Nothing really seems to be happening at least in terms of Chinese investments the, the, with this political shift you have like i mean you have vaccines coming in, but beyond that, there is little else that is coming in from the north at least China has closed down its borders for two years. Nepal has been unable to convince. Uh, China to open up the borders even for trade and the two trade the there, are, there were two trade crossings one of them is completely shut one of them is just like barely open at a bare minimum nepali traders have been complaining that China, they haven't been receiving goods on time but Nepal has been unable to convince China to open up and I just told you about the food security issues so these things are obviously happening so on one hand like I mean one could argue that China is indicating, or China has indicated its preference for communist governments in Nepal, right? Uh, through its, let's say, uh, the CCP's fraternal relations, through ties like that. But on the other hand, I mean, does does that mean that China has completely withdrawn itself from Nepal? I doubt that is true. I mean, uh, we know that Chinese ambitions have risen across the world. and I doubt there will be a situation where we can say that, oh, China has withdrawn itself completely from Nepal. So I think right now, it's it's a, it's a curious time because the pandemic is also making the weaknesses of the Nepali state quite evident. I mean, the border asymmetries are much, much clearer, both on both the northern and the southern borders. Through, um, so it, how things will shape up post the pandemic. I think it is something that will be a very, very, we are at a curious juncture, I would say, in South Asia on the whole itself. I mean, you have India and China fighting. other. Uh, pretty much they fought each other in Galwan in June 2020. So you have that conflict happening. You have, let's say, the U.S. also coming in with its little, let's say, the Indo-Pacific and this other, let's say, alliances. You have China shoring up its border infrastructure. Uh, creating new border villages and allowing creating new land border laws, so it's a, it's an interesting time to be. But how it will shape up, that that is something that is still I would say the those contours are still difficult to see immediately.
1: So, so I think with that, thank you for listening to the interview with Amish Raj author of All Roads Lead North: Nepal's Turn to China. Amish, I actually have one more question for you which is uh, where can people find your work and what's next for you?
2: So the book is right now only in South, available in South Asia. Uh, I believe the, the UK and the US editions, the international editions will be out early uh, next year. Uh, as for what's next, I don't know. <laughs> right now I'm just giving, uh, It's it'll, uh, in March 2022, it'll be about a year since the book came and I've given myself till that time. But I'm very I'm very interested in this question of borders, this question of how this in this entire idea of state making in the in the himalaya and how let's say states like Nepal or india or china sort of incorporates the citizens from these communities these border communities into their state making projects into the let's say this uh, the, the, this this narrative so it i'm i'm I'm, I'm genuinely curious to see how the, the India-Nepal border, let's say, functions uh, beyond this political rhetoric, beyond this, let's say, the rhetoric of, let's say, nationalism. I w- I'm curious to see that. So let's see. I'm hoping that next year, at least, I'll get to travel a little bit to these places, and then perhaps something comes out of that. So just keeping oh, I it think, open.
1: <laughs> I think we all hope that we can travel next year. We'll see. <laughs> um so you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R I gordon. That's n i c k r i g o r d o n. You can go to AsianViewOfBooks to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural, and you can find counts other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. com. Helen, where can people find you?
0: Yeah, so you can follow me on Twitter at Helen Lee Writes. Uh, yeah, H-E-L-E-N-L-I writes. Um, it's my uh, writer's account. So yeah, super excited to connect
1: with people. So the Age Review Books podcast is on all favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing authors, writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with James Kelly Morningstar, author of War and Business in the Philippines, 1942-1944. Um but before then thank you so much Amish for joining me today.
2: My pleasure Nicholas. Thank you Helen. Thank you Nicholas for having me over.